millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Charlene Teo on her debut novel, Ponty. Charlene Teo was born in Singapore and she has an LLB in law from the University of Warwick and an MA in creative writing from the University of East Anglia, where she received the Booker Prize Foundation Scholarship and the David T.K. Wong Creative Writing Award. She was shortlisted for the Berlin Writing Prize and holds fellowship from the Elizabeth Costova Foundation and the University of Iowa International Writing Programme. And in 2016, she won the inaugural Deborah Rogers Writers Award, which would become Ponty, her debut novel, which we're going to talk about today. Charlene, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello. Can you describe Ponty for me? Um, Ponty is about a um, failed horror movie actress um, in Singapore, and she makes a trilogy of really schlocky uh, B-horror movies, Ponty, Ponty 2 and Ponty 3. And uh, the, the time frame spans from the late 60s to the year 2020. Um, the novel is also narrated by her teenage daughter Sue in the year 2003. And um, the final strand is by Sue's um, frenemy, a former friend, Cersei, in the year 2020. And we'll go through those three characters in turn, but tell me why the three perspectives, first of all, why did you want to do that? It all sprang from the, the sort of Ponty character, Amisa, really, the, the failed actress, Ponty is basically a short form for a, my short form for a Pontianak. That's a mythical, cannibalistic entity in Southeast Asian folklore, um, which basically takes the form of this um, really sort of scary woman with long dark hair who you know attacks men. I wanted to write this novel from the point of view of such a monster, um, this all powerful monster. But I found it really, really hard developing the narrative from there when she was all powerful. So I was also very interested in the idea of female monstrosity and the spectacle of women, particularly as they're depicted in film. So, like, I always thought that, you know, in terms of the female face on screen and actresses, they're, they're perceived by the public or by society and the media in a particular very gendered way. And once their kind of currency, which is their sort of beauty, the appeal of youth fades, where does that leave them if they haven't had a chance to develop their career much further? So for female actresses, for example, they, they play the parts of the ingenue or the love interest. And then all of a sudden, once they're in the kind of limbo zone, you know, which seems to me anything between, sort of, you know, 29 to 
40, all of a sudden you have to play like matriarchs or mothers or like nothing wrong with that, but it's just a different sort of space you occupy. I thought that was very unfair. So I was kind of interested in exploring that. I kind of piece the two together with how society perceives women and how women get objectified in particular ways, particularly if they if they sort of bank on particular things like like looks or beauty in, in a very, very sort of heteronormative gendered society where these things are taught to young women and girls to be, you know, the, their formative sort of values and currency from young ages. And it's fed to us through really toxic messages and magazines and in the mass media. Well, let's talk about the the three characters in turn then. So Sue first, and she's narrating this story and, as you said, the 2003 timeline. Who is she? Sue is, um, well, she's 16. She has no friends in school. She um, grows up in a all-girls school in Singapore, a fairly privileged one. And it's a very, very strange time where there are these um, sort of forest fires from Indonesia. So there's all this kind of haze that's sort of drifting over the island. It's almost surreal, but also intensely suffocating. And there's also a lot of sort of hypochondriac sort of fears about health about you know SARS viruses about bird flu all these things sort of it's a confluence of of forces and events and a very very particular time to me a sort of queer sultry summer to be a teenage girl who's completely not at ease in her body and not at ease in herself who is kind of living very very much in the shadow of her mother who's just so cruel and she lives with her mother in this very dingy sort of cul-de-sac at the end of a leafy driveway where like the doors are always shut in inside and it's always dim because the aunt and the mother sort of have the occupation as spirit mediums so so there, there is a lot of sort of the supernatural kind of undertones of if not mysticism some sort of mystery in there um, so in this timeline, she makes this friendship with Cersei at school. And it's one of these, I guess, sort of intense friendships, because first of all, they, they're friends because nobody else wants to be friends with them, frankly, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about this, this sort of like this, this intense teenage friendship that these two have. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's it's one of those things that's really both sweet and stifling about the kinds of bonds that you make at that age when you're not quite sure who you are and you're trying to figure it out. And it's like, particularly in, in social situations and when you're at that age as a teenager, it can often feel like nobody understands me. I haven't found my, my people. So when you find someone that's got a little bit in common with you, you kind of cling on to each other like, like a lifeboat. That sort of dependency... Um, and codependency in a way can be both incredibly sort of heartening but also incredibly draining Um, so I I wanted to explore that and I I really enjoy the sort of um, I enjoyed writing the kind of sparring that they have with each other like how obviously even though Sue is the more sort of docile one and Cersei's more assertive and more confident um, outwardly that there was a give and take that there were things they admire about each other and also things that they they find annoying and I think that's so true to life. Cersei describes it later on in the book, looking back as, as basically being like a like a first marriage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some element of the sort of romantic or that kind of sweeping, you know, absorbing emotion that, that we often attribute to like solely romantic relationships. But in this case with them it's platonic, but also competitive and Sue has this sort of infatuation with Cersei's brother. And I've always been very interested with observing the siblings of people, whether it's siblings of people I know, like acquaintances or partners or friends, and just trying to find the similarities in them. Because this is essentially two people that have grown up with the same sort of, you know, the same sort of circumstances. And there's something very, very fascinating about that, particularly when they behave very differently. There's also, 
a lot of jealousy there, and this is something that this is a theme throughout the book because we could also describe as jealousy the the relationship that Amisa has mm-hmm. with Sue in the fact that you know she she sort of sees her as being I mean not directly but sort of an element in her in her sort of failure in the failure of her career. Yeah, massively. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in um, the concept of like sort of female jealousy, female competition, and female rivalry because I think that it's something that is really like unpleasant, really sort of pernicious and totally socially cultivated. I think of it as, I don't know, if if you're like a little bear and you see another little bear, you're more competitive with the other little bear than with like a raccoon or something. I don't I don't even know why I bring up a raccoon. There's no, there are no raccoons. I don't think I've ever met a raccoon. Anyway, <laughs> it's one no of those things is Singapore. like this uncanny sort of like doppelganger situation. Yeah, and I was very interested in that. Like, like for example, with Amisa and Sue, like Amisa recognizes that Sue is a part of her, completely, literally. Like, you know, she's a part of her. She sprung from her, and for that reason, she really resents her because um, Sue is younger, and also that she is unable to, in a way, sort of, you know, recognize Amisa's unable to recognize her younger self in this girl that she already resents by virtue of having all that time on her side, which is completely irrational and cruel. And so let's move on to Cersei. So in her chapters, we have from the perspective of 2020 as an adult, where do we find her in the book and in this time zone? So Cersei is um, in her early 30s, um, newly divorced, and she works um, as social media consultancy. And um, she is tasked with uh, working on a remake of the Ponty films. So that, you know, forces her to reevaluate or confront her feelings about um, Amisa and, and Sue, who she hasn't seen for many, many years. So you're writing this book in the first person for both Sue and Cersei in different time periods. And it's interesting to look at the two characters from each person's perspective. So you're writing about, you know, in Sue's chapters, how Sue perceives Cersei, and then in Cersei's chapters, the other way around. But also there's this great difference in age between the two timelines. Tell me about writing about the other character from the perspective. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I do. I do. Well, the, the thing is that I, the Amisa chapters I actually wrote all in one chunk. So in, in an earlier draft of the book, actually, um, the entire sections, all the sections of Amisa come in right toward the end. And I kind of liked that because I thought it was it was both shambolic, but also quite interesting to encounter someone's entire backstory so late in the narrative after they died. Um, so I thought there was a, almost like a metaphysical element of that in that, you know, the book is sort of a relic where, you know, you can you can have these sorts of insights into someone's existence that, you know, you were denied of earlier narratively and, and also that the characters, the other characters are denied of. So she's constantly sort of a Wilco's mystery to them. Um, so she's the only one that I wrote in that way. But um, the rest of the time it was Cersei and Sue, Cersei and Sue, and I was alternating and I wrote it in a really messy way in that I would just write until I got sick of, like, I got sick or I got really tired and I hit a wall and then I would change. And it would always take me a while. It was, it was like kind of easing into a pool, like to, to kind of ease from one consciousness to another. And I tried to make them really distinct. I found Cersei quite a lot of fun to write because she's a little bit more bitter and world wary and she's reflecting on the past, but also. I wanted to make her reflect in a way that was realistic. So she mustn't have too much sort of self-condemnation, but there must also be some sort of element of complexity there. In the same way that we cogitate and we kind of we kind of narrativized our past behaviors and we amplify certain events and we diminish others. I'm always so interested by how our memories work in that I think there's a quote 
I don't remember who said it, but it's from a book about memory. And it says memory is just full of potholes, right? And your idea of a particular period of time of your life, for example, the teenagers like when Sue and Cersei were, is completely different to someone else, even though you spent all that time together. So it's I'm very interested in that kind of uncanny um, disconnect when someone says, do you remember when you said that thing? Or do you remember that time when you really hurt someone's feelings? And you can't remember at all. It's almost like it was a completely different person. So I was very interested in them sort of perceiving each other. But of course, you don't get Sue's sort of interiority in that regard as an older person for that much of the novel, but we don't want to spoil it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Charlene Teo. We're talking about her debut novel, Ponty. And Charlene, let's move on to Amisa. So her chapters move through time. They're all much further in the past, but they move different years as we watch her career progress and then basically fail. Also, these chapters are in the third person, so there's like a slight more distance looking back at these events. Tell me, first of all, where she comes from. The, I mean, literally, the, the village. Oh, the character. Well, she comes from a tiny village um, in Penang called Kampong Mimpi Sedi, um, which is a, a made-up place. It's a, it's a translation. It means sad dream. And there's also a song called Mimpi Sedi, 
um, that's I, I came across. It's sang by this um, wonderful singer who's passed away now called Teresa Tang. So that was the that was the cover that I I listened to, and I just thought it was so melancholy and beautiful, and really evoked not necessarily a literal time to me, but a real sort of sense of of mourning and sadness. And it's it's just so like you know it, it sounds like the past. So I, yeah, I, I kind of it's it's an imaginary place. It's very small and it's um it's kind of it's, it's surrounded by a sort of like swamp um and it was very very much fun for me to kind of research how to do that so I was looking at birds that would be there and what kinds of creatures and and what the houses would look like um so Amisa comes from this really small kampong and um I don't really want to spoil the story but she eventually leaves and she comes to Singapore at a time just when everything's sort of developing and, and, and she, she kind of evolves with the city. She watches it develop. She watches it get increasingly built up. Um, she works in a cinema and um, that kind of is what sparks the idea to her of sort of being a face on screen. And um, there's a lot to do in the book with cinema and how the visual spectacle of, of a film, when it's when you when you go into a cinema and they, they, they lower the lights, you know, you are very much, you know, in the thrall of whatever is on screen. And all the feelings that you feel, they're both impersonal, but also deeply evocative, especially with those giants sort of popcorn blockbusters that she, she watches from the back of the, the theatre as the usherette. And that's kind of her evolution. And um, she gets sort of scouted effectively one day by a very charismatic charming man called Iskandar Wayanto, um, who basically asks her if she wants to audition for these films. You mentioned at the beginning the legend of the Pontianak, which is what it's based on. Tell mm-hmm. us more about that. Um, well, basically, it's rooted in sort of Malay and Indonesian folklore. Pontianak is also a place in Indonesia, and it's basically this, generally meant to be a woman that died in childbirth, and she... I think if, if the barrel rights are not sort of handled correctly, then she, she sort of rises up from the dead. And there, there are a few sort of different iterations of it, but it's basically just that if, if you can hear her very near to you, that means that she's actually very far away. But if you hear her kind of crying far away, it means she's really close by. So there are all these really scary, <laughs> scary things around the myth. And she, she, she's very, very gruesome. She sort of dismembers her victims. And also, like, if you're driving alone on a, like, dirt road late at night, you know, she often said to have appeared in, like, the back of people's sort of seats, car seats, that kind of thing. A real sort of, like, oral tradition of that. She's always wearing a white dress and uh, she loves to hang out in banana trees. And the films that Amisa stars in, they're very vividly recreated and described. These sort of, like, you know, quite bad, old, have subsequently become Mm. cult films. Are these based on any real films of your memory? Yeah, well, I watched whatever I could get a hold of. I watched the original clips from the original Pontianak films. So they actually were very successful. Um, There was sort of more of a golden era of Singaporean filmmaking. And that's another thing that I was really very interested in exploring in that there's a real lacuna in um, Singapore's sort of cinematic history. So like I think the 50s 50s and the 60s was doing well. And there was this director called P. Ramley who directed the Pontianak movies. and, And they were successful. But then toward the 70s, like the, the popularity dropped off and like you know studios stopped making as financing as many films and also that was when sort of like bond movies and action movies were more more of the fashion so i was interested in what if you know what kinds of films were made in that gap right and what if someone tried to make some films but they just weren't popular anymore there was the wrong kind of monster people are more interested in aliens and star wars and stuff so i love the idea of this sort of really gory supernatural 
sort of legend and that whole aesthetic of that, you know, the swamps and the woman in the in the white dress with the long black hair, you know, someone trying to trying so hard to make that work and it just not working because it was the wrong time already. It was already outdated. When we first meet Amisa, as you mentioned, she's basically living um, in a house with um, another woman, Aunt Youngsie, mm-hmm. and they're basically fake mediums or, you know, potentially fake mediums. Is that a thing? I mean, well, is I, it a, I, a particular thing in Singapore? Is this well, I mean, I, I did do my research about it and I read several news articles about that happening. So, like, there had been stories in the, in the media about, you know, fake sort of spirit mediums or people that claim to have sort of occult powers and um, really swindling generally really old and vulnerable people out of, like, all their savings. So kind of making them turn up meeting, you know, at, at an MRT station or something, you know, with, with all their money and plastic bags and then just, you know really cheating them of it. So I find things like clairvoyancy and the whole sort of psychic industry very fascinating because on one hand, I feel that if you are someone that approaches for the services of that, you really want, you want to believe in it, right? So it's like, I don't think you can say like without a question that, you know, everyone is not for real. I think it's a very specific transaction and it depends from, I don't know, situation to situation. But yeah, in their case, that's what they do. They kind of exploit um, the vulnerable people and... Yeah, they conduct like sort of fake seances, a little bit theatrical. But the Aunt Yunsi character, I wanted it to be a bit more kind of um, you know ambiguous as to whether she did actually have something. Because you know, I, I feel that intuition, like human intuition, or um, you know how you can sense the vibe of something. You wouldn't necessarily say, oh, you know, I'm psychic. But some people are really perceptive, and I kind of wanted her to be like that, someone who was very uncannily knowing. We haven't really talked about. Singapore itself that much, which is really another character in the book, and you portray the, you know, the heat and the the air quality particularly well. And um, tell me how the city changed over this, over the sort of time period in this book. Well, it, I mean, because it's constantly being sort of developed and expanded upon, and like it's, you know, sort of dred- dredging up stuff from the sea and like creating more land because it's such a small island. Um, but it's really, you know, impressive and dazzling and it, its facades change all the time. Things are constantly getting redeveloped. Or I'm also very interested in the sort of industry or aesthetic of like nostalgia chic, you know, where you get a shop house, which is more of like a traditional Singaporean shop house and you kind of varnish it and make it over, you know, you gut out the insides and turn it into like some kind of swanky, I don't know, artisanal bakery I don't know uh, that there's this there's this kind of real fascination particularly in Singapore of like the old days I think you you find that in quite a lot of like kind of big cities this, this fascination or fetishization of like the old days and the old ways which actually runs as a sort of counterpoint to the like kind of relentless development and the fact that like you know old buildings are constantly being torn down or like re-varnished until there's no genuine aspect of their original sort of quality to it but it's made to kind of look it's like a facade um so i'm very very interested in that and also obviously because i go home and i come back i I go back and forth between london and singapore and every time i go back it's you would feel this with anywhere it's it always changes in some way or another so i'm kind of interested in that that position of kind of reacquaintance and then removal um so i think this the city like our relationship with cities is deeply personal and it's also something that is very, very hard to remain static unless you stay there your whole life. You know, your, your your relationship with it changes according to emotions and the particular sort of associations that you make with it. 
yeah, so on and so forth. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because as you said, you've obviously travelled back and forth, but, mm-hmm. you know, fundamentally you've been in the UK for, for over a decade now. It's a place that is changing constantly. Is it easier to write about it at a distance, do you think, than it would have been to write this novel if you were, if you were still there? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. I've tried writing stories set in different parts of the world to, like, limited success. So I don't write about Singapore, like, for the sake of it, you know, it, it's just the place, the space that really occupies my imagination. And my claim to it is my personal claim, my personal experience. Like, I'm the only person that can write about it in the way that I know it and the way that I fill in my imagination. And I'm so deeply, deeply fond of it. And I feel it's so strange and so weird <laughs> and, like, both shiny and grimy. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I find it very fascinating, like, forgetting and then being reacquainted with spaces I mentioned at the beginning that you were lucky enough to win the inaugural Deborah Rogers Award, which is a, a prize that's particularly been set up to, to help debut novelists. So what difference did that make to you? Oh, it was life-changing. It was just this tremendous catalyst. Like I, I wasn't anywhere near finished. I was like maybe a quarter of the way through the novel. I honestly like would have taken, I don't know, how long. I was so unsure of myself as well. Like I doubt myself all the time. So it was so nice to just have this sort of great catalyst this this push and I I was still like in complete disbelief of it I feel so lucky and like privileged to have won it does it also put pressure on you though yeah yeah it did it did put a great deal of pressure and I would lie if I say I don't still feel it but you know it's it's amazing and we just kind of just roll with however it goes I mean I want to keep writing like books for as long as I can and I got this tremendously great fortunate thing in the beginning and I'm really grateful for that I'm, I'm just going to keep going we just say also how uh, and I know I know fundamentally we shouldn't judge it but the cover of this book is amazing it's got a really great really great artwork thank you well you should thank Picador and like the, the cover designers just one more thing and then I'll get you to read a bit of the book if you would what's next for you well I'm working on my next one yeah it's I can't talk too much about it I would just say that it's radically different <laughs> That's good enough for us. Chapter 11, Amisa, 1977. Six months after they started courting, Weilong took Amisa to the Sate Club. While he went to order, she sat on a wooden bench overlooking the river and stared out at the water, dark as oil. Her arms and legs ached. It wasn't just the long shifts at work. Increasingly, she found it draining being around other people all day. To think that she had grown up in a crowded kampong, and now the only serenity she felt was in a darkened theatre. She was only 19. With age, would her misanthropy worsen like a chronic condition? She felt separate yet shamefully like the other girls, who sat on adjacent benches waiting for their bows, smoothing out their skirts, adjusting the buckles on their patent shoes. Weilong came over with a paper plate piled with satay. Lamisa took a stick and tore a nub of burnt mutton off with her teeth. She chewed with cowboy consternation. Smoke from the charcoal grills wafted over. Did you call home this week? She wiped grease from her lips. Yeah, Titi wasn't around. The aunt down the road taught my tia how to make way tutus, and now she's obsessed. She can't stop making them. My second brother has a girlfriend. Everyone else is the same. In truth, tia was the only one she spoke to. Her parents hardly ever came to the phone, and when they did, the conversations were stilted and brief. And what about you? she asked. Have you heard back? Weilong shrugged. 
You know how my brothers are, he said, even though she'd never met them. Our guns and our sings, all of them. Only want to borrow money, now that Alouette gave me promotion. Money then top, Amisa said. She felt full now, and a little nauseous. She moved her tongue around the inside of her mouth and dislodged a piece of gristle from her left molar. She didn't want to appear unladylike, so she swallowed it. Later in bed, Weilong twirled her hair in his hand. She fidgeted out of his grasp before leaning back against him. There was a very tall, ancient ficus tree that she could see from his six-story window. At 10pm, its long branches were backlit by the amber squares and punctuations of people at home. The tree was considered sacred, with a shrine underneath its boughs. She liked the look of it, grand and incongruous against the skyline of scaffold and construction cranes. Move in with me, Amisa, Weilong mumbled into her hair. He said her name like an exotic fruit. Sex cast a particularly soporific spell over him. He had the long, low drawl of a sleep talker. Maybe, she replied in a syrupy voice. I'm so tired. I can't believe I've got to get up at three. Quit the seafood stall. I can't just do that, she laughed. I can't, I can't, I can't, he mimicked. She laughed, a little less enthusiastically this time, still staring out the window. She heard him draw his breath. Marry me, he said. Amisa turned toward Weilong. He was serious. She took in his softened eyes with their deep apicansal folds, his pockmarks and sharp nose. He was so good to her that it felt traitorous to recall her initial repulsion. She pressed her mouth against his in intimate panic. He put his arms around her, tilting her fully towards him, and reached for her breasts. She felt his tongue part her lips and slide around, this fat, tender worm stubbed to a stem. She thought of Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman with their close-lipped kisses, crisp shifting profiles, the epic idea of epic romance. And then, incongruously, she pictured her own mother back in their dingy, herb-scattered kitchen, wondering about what disrespectful deed her daughter was up to, if she even wondered at all. So I've been talking to Charlene Teo. We've been talking about her debut novel, Ponty, which is out now from Picador. Charlene, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 